Artificial intelligence is here. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Daniel Lopez. This is the AI Education Conversation, where we explore the opportunities, risks, and the impacts of AI across education. Let's jump in. What's up, everyone? I hope the week is going well. The school year is starting to ramp up now. Educators are definitely starting to get tired, and some of those grand plans that have been built over the summer, they're starting to get tested. That daily grind takes its toll on everyone in schools. For some schools, some of those grand plans might have included plans to explore artificial intelligence. We know how important implementation is in education. Those plans have to be pressure tested. they got to be tight. Over the past couple of months, I've seen Amanda Bickerstaff, founder of AI for Education, do what she can to support schools with the many barriers and challenges in implementation also. Now, in my opinion, we can't talk about this enough. Given the complexity and the diversity across our school landscape and the unique challenges each community will face, Amanda has been at the front lines working with schools. She's been engaging with them on the possibilities of AI and also deeply understanding their fears and skepticism surrounding AI. All that to say, I'm really thrilled to share our conversation in today's episode. Before we jump into my conversation with Amanda, let's jump into some AI updates. Now for our updates today, I actually wanted to share two appropriately timed studies highlighting the perception, adoption, and effectiveness of AI. One in the K-12 education, and then one in the workforce. For the K-12 education study, I wanted to highlight a study done, uh, a chapter of a study that was conducted by professors Karen Woodruff, James Hudson, and Catherine Arnon. They just dropped this really interesting chapter they collaborated on titled Perceptions and Barriers to Adopting Artificial Intelligence in K-12 Education, a survey of educators in 50 states. In this chapter, they share the results on a study they conducted around the perception of K-12 educators in all 50 states of the USA towards AI policies, training, and resources related to the technology of AI, their comfort with technology, willingness to adopt new technologies for classroom instruction, and needs assessment for the necessarily infrastructure, such as reliable internet access, hardware, software, etc. So at a high level, what did they find in their study? They found that the overall positive perception of AI and openness towards its integration from the teachers and the participants. But they also found that disparities in access to technology and comfort levels with using technology still exist especially when you consider different regions, genders, and age groups. One recommendation they named, which really stood out to me, was to enhance technology and AI training, especially in those teacher prep programs, and identify opportunities to provide continuous professional development opportunities for current educators. It's obviously going to be tough because there's 50 other things that have to take place during those very limited spaces at the beginning of the year and then in the summer and then throughout the school year. But I love the idea of trying to incorporate some of these training within some of these embedded spaces that teachers are already committed to. I also think that this study pairs really nicely to the conversation I'll be having with Amanda today. Uh, I'll share the full study in our show notes so that you can check it out. Um, But she also shares some similar insights around the adoption and perception within the K-12 space. I did want to compare, though, what we just shared in that study to this one around AI adoption in the workforce, specifically consulting. Ethan Mollick who has kind of emerged as one of the big thought leaders around AI adoption out of UPenn. He was in a, uh, in a recently published experiment with the Boston Consulting Group and a, a group of other social scientists. 
And they did this large experiment on a group of 758 consultants across the Boston Consulting Group to explore the future of work with artificial intelligence. So specifically in the study, what they did is for this group of 758 consultants, they gave them 18 realistic consulting tasks and they broke up participants into three groups. A group that had no AI usage, one that had AI access, and then one that had AI access with actual prompt engineering overview support. They had some really interesting uh, results here. I think overall really bullish on AI with some of the results. They found that for each of those 18 tasks, consulting, consultants using AI were significantly more productive. They completed 12.2% more of the tasks on average. They completed the task 25% more quickly, and they produced significantly higher quality results, 40% higher quality compared to a control group. They also found that AI tools were a great skill leveler. The consultants who scored the worst in the pre-assessment had the biggest jump in their performance, 43% when they got to use AI. Another point to note is that though the the consultants using AI were 19% percentage points less likely to produce correct solutions compared to those without AI. Found that to be really interesting because again, I know something we continue to talk about is how a lot of these large language models not always right. Very convincing though. The reason I think I wanted to share both studies with you all today is because I think it highlights an important tension which is going to continue to persist for a while here, which is the perception and, and the actions of the workforce which appears to be exploring, adopting AI at a much quicker pace than K-12 schools are. What I'm concerned about is if we look up three to four from years, uh, three to four years from now at the current trajectory, what is this actually going to mean for our students in our schools? Not just those in K-12, but also those higher ed students who may not have had ample exposure and training with AI tools. Our guest today shares insights which I believe will get us closer to answering this question. So let's jump into my conversation with Amanda Bickerstaff. Amanda has deep experiences as a high school teacher and ed tech entrepreneur. She recently founded AI for Education to try to bridge the massive chasm that exists between K-12 education and AI technology circles. Amanda really challenged my thinking in our conversation today, especially around the human and physical resource costs of producing AI models, which is hardly talked about. Though it's to say that we are both entering this conversation from a space of wanting AI tools to be useful and successful for our schools, I think we also acknowledge that there's many hurdles to clear in terms of privacy effectiveness implementation. Regardless of either of our opinions on AI and those of schools, one thing we both agreed on was that artificial intelligence is here. A school or educators can try to bury their head in the sand, they can pretend it don't exist, or they can actively set regressive policies to prohibit them. But both of those things may ultimately do more harm than good in the educational experience of our students and educators. Amanda has a lot to say around acknowledging the good, bad, and ugly currently with artificial intelligence and what it will really take to implement in schools. As always, let me know what you think about today's conversation at the AI Ed Combo on X. Give me a follow on LinkedIn and let me know. Curiosity opens doors. Connections build bridges. Learning paves away. Humans are the heart of the AI education. Amanda Bickerstaff, welcome to the AI Education Conversation. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So, you know, I've been able to follow a lot of the the journey of the, you know, the the organization that you founded, AI for Education, on LinkedIn. It's been really excited to see some of the resources that you've put out there. 
Um, you know, before we get too far in there, though, I'd love to just be able to hear and, and introduce you to our audience here and your background. I know that, you know, you have some great, you had some great prior experiences as a teacher and as an ed tech founder. Uh, but I guess like more specifically, I'm really curious to hear from you. What was your first experience with AI? And then like, how did that end up compounding to you now leading an organization dedicated to uh, bringing AI to education here? Well, I think it's the nerdiest origin story for a company that I've ever heard. But um, so I have been an educator for 20 years. So I started as a teacher. I taught high school biology in the Bronx. Um, I've had like every job in education that has taken me not just in, around the U.S., but around the world, where my last role, I was a, a tech founder or a tech CEO in, in Australia. And um, I managed to get very burnt out. Um, and so being a first time founder in a new country in the most lockdown place in the world, Melbourne, Australia, is is a really hard thing to do. And I, uh, you know, learned a lot about myself. I really enjoyed what we did, but I also found that I... I have this like pathological need to like help people and to and to to make it work. And what happened is I started to take on a lot of that to the point where it became unhealthy for me. And even though I love what we were doing, we built a well-being tool that was helping kids, which was probably the favorite thing that I'd done before this work. Um, and so I kind of just said I need to stop. And so I deliberately did not take on, I took on one single consulting gig and literally did it on the way to the airport leaving for a six-month trip around the world and realized I was not interested in doing consulting work and was very happy to to not do that. So I traveled the world. I, you know, I did all kinds of crazy things that took me from Europe to Japan. And then I got back to the U.S. And we all, I think, had this moment where in our professional careers, you're at an inflection point. And like in a lot of things, we tend to kind of go back to the things we've been good at before and look at that as a place to start. So I started with like, what am I good at? I'm good at like running other people's organizations. So I applied for an ed tech CEO position, which was like a two and a half month process. I joined a startup that was needing someone that was focused on like kind of the education side. And what, what I realized is that um, it just didn't feel right. And, you know, I, I've talked a lot about wanting to find, to find a, like an organization, not like to build something for myself and so that I could create something that I was really passionate about, but I also can like really support the culture building and all these things. And so I had first thought, okay, like what's going to make the difference right now? So I actually bought a URL that no one knows, but it's called teachgenie.ai. Um, and so I was, we were actually started to build what we like what magic school is or eduade. Like that was like in like March, so I started thinking about that. And then, you know, but even that was kind of like still like working with technologists and I still hadn't really sat down and played with ChatGPT. And so I finally sat down and was like, okay, let's, let's, let's get into this, not just in the theoretical piece and actually looking at it from like the point of view of, of like an educator. And so what I did is I picked the thing that I hated the most. So as a, you know, my first job out of grad school was a essentially a, a associate director of education at a salary advancement company where I was the only education person for two, almost like 20 months that saw every piece of content that we built for like 200 courses. And every course had three rubrics. So that meant I either wrote or edited 600 rubrics in 20 months. Uh, do not suggest that. I still have like deep, like emotional scarring from this. And I never want to write a rubric again. So I, I swear, I didn't even I didn't even go like the basic stuff. I went right into write me a rubric 
in one sentence into ChatGPT 3.5 and it wrote me a rubric and it formatted it in a table and my life was changed. I realized, <laughs> like, and it sounds, is that so nerdy? But like, it's true. Like I realized at that moment that this was a transformative technology in the way that we have been talking about transformation that has been frustrating to me as both a teacher and then a researcher in NetTech uh, founder is that like we haven't really had transformative technology where it really personalized learning or made classrooms better or more efficient. What we've done is we've taken like the industrial model and we've added technology to it. In some ways it's made it slightly better or maybe a little like, or it's made it slightly worse. But this idea of being able to create with natural language what had been but impossible before was something that I realized, oh man, this is going to have huge impacts across literally every part of the, of our worlds, but specifically like I see it really changing at teaching and learning. And then on the other end, I realized, oh no, man, this is not better Google, which is the, the height of our technology use is like, we're really good at Googling. It's actually worse Google and it doesn't work that way. And there's no like, there's no like incremental jump between Google and chat GBT. Like you actually have to learn how to prompt and, you know, do like computer science type thinking, even with natural language. So that's when I started AI for Education. I was like, okay, what can I do to help? Very much your way to like enter AI, I think is similar for myself in the sense that there's, you know, I just, I've been in education my entire career. I know so many principals throughout the state of Massachusetts where I currently work that, man, they're just struggling. It's so tough to be in schools right now. And a lot of the challenges you were kind of alluding to with, with the rubric analysis you were doing is just, it's just having to do a lot of work. There's just so much work that's requiring so much mental bandwidth and just not enough hours in a day and folks are burnt out. They're not making enough money. They're underappreciated and all of those things. And then when I was able to simulate a couple of, uh, you know, I think just experiments, situations that I thought could be applicable in the work that I do, which is really in college access. I similarly found that Chad GPT was just doing something that could take an hour, two hour, three hours of time for myself or folks uh, that I work with. And it was doing it instantly and it wasn't perfect, but it, it was 80%. It gives you a starting point and then the mental bandwidth and the way you're approaching that work is much uh, in a much different place when you have something to build off for versus when you're having to create from a blank slate. And so I think that piece really resonates. I'm curious to know just in the founding of this piece. So you kind of mentioned, you know, having decide, trying to figure out if you wanted to create a product, trying to figure out how you wanted to to enter and contribute to this field. And you really focused on implementation. I'm kind of curious as to how you really landed on that and latched onto this, this specific kind of need here of really yeah, focusing I mean, on it's supporting folks I'll, I'll, implementing you know, when being I was exposed first doing to AI. This work, um, my co-founder who became my co-founder, Dan, and I worked together when I did all those rubrics like nine years ago. And so he's a really amazing marketer. He's been, you know, in like education marketing for the last 10 years. And I talked to some investors, I talked to some colleagues and everyone was pretty much like, yeah, build a tool because that's how you're going to like grow and like it's brand new and you've been a tech CEO. And so it took me a while. I actually didn't go full time on the implementation side with AI for Education until after Memorial Day. And the reason why I did was a couple of things. One is if you have ever built for ed tech for schools, it is very hard and it requires a significant amount of like money just to get to like where you can roster or you like pull in rosters or student data or to be able to build something that can be interoperable if at all 
it's very difficult to sell into schools. Like there's a lot of like I learned the hard way at um, my last job. But then at the other end, what I started to realize was the deep limitations of this nascent technology. And so when we're building generative AI tools, what we're using is we're using foundational models like ChatGPT, Llama, Claude, et cetera, and then we're building upon them, right? So when the tools themselves have deep foundational problems, everything that's built on top of them has those problems. And you can work in and around those, but you can't, it's like building, you know, a, 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 you've got a glass house but the glass itself is flawed, right? Like it's still going to have those flaws regardless if it's structurally sound for the most part, right? And so that's what was happening. So I realized that there was a couple of things. It was very early. This technology wasn't quite ready to go and it still isn't. And then also it's just really hard to build in that tech. But so that was on one side, right? But then that's how you get like, you grow, you get a tech funding, venture funding, you could like really impact people widely, right? So there's still like things that were really attractive to that as someone that's mission driven. But then what happened is honestly, the world told me to focus on implementation. AI for education, like I said, built a website in a weekend. My mom's response was it's very generic. So it was clearly not a very good website. And yet within a couple of months, it was so clear that what we were doing was resonating. I was getting of like we were being offered money before we were ready to take it. We had the opportunity to work internationally. Our prompt library right now, it's been up since mid, you know, just about five months has been viewed by like 70,000 people across the world. It's something that people come back to. And so we just, I just listened. And I also really love it. I get to like be with educators in schools, talking to thought leaders. I get to build stuff that's brand new that like people find like hopeful value in. And I get to like hopefully help shepherd in like a more responsible like path to this technology that is so set to change our lives. And so that's been pretty crazy. It's definitely not going to be like we're not going to be able to get an investment. So we are we're doing it on our own. I'm still funding this with the support of my co-founder. But at the same time, man, I'm just so much more excited about like, you know, hoping to like get like AI literacy into the hands and of like everyone that we can get t- like, like education is a space in which you can create AI literacy because you can make it a priority and it fits within the, like what school is. Right. And so I get really excited about it. Yeah. I mean, that resonates, I think to your initial point uh, at tech in particular, I think there, there's this like large chasm that exists between the ed tech sphere as a whole and public education, K to 12 public education, um, part of that is the fact that there could just be a lack of representation within some of the ed tech spaces. In some cases, they are represented, but then as you described, the the challenge there is that within the K-12 space, there's just so many different fragmented experiences, and each school uh, is a very unique ecosystem that is like very um, territorial and possessive of their community and of their experience. And I think a lot of that, what that stems from is the fact that there have been a lot of ed tech products coming into schools and teachers, you know, myself, I'm really speaking from my here, have had to like use ed tech tools within schools and just been totally burned by the experience of using some of those tools. And as a result, there is kind of this distrust of outside products that are coming from outside of the school when it, as, when it comes to a lot of ed tech products. Um, so that's, those are a lot of hurdles to bypass, right? And, uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, I, I think as you're describing, uh, there are a lot of good ideas and that that good idea, the reason it fails may not necessarily be because it was wrong. It fails because 
the implementation is the most critical piece, especially in education. It's also the, the, tr the trickiest to figure out because of the so many dynamics at play here, as you've described. And so I think I'd love to just hear more about your philosophy and vision here, maybe what the reaction has been. I know you've said you've been able to like really listen and hear stories. So, I mean, let's, let's jump into that. I'd love to understand more about what your world's been like. You know, when you think about the work that you've done last few months here, you know, what's your approach been to like actually bridging the gap towards implementation, implementation, knowing that there are so many schools or districts that come in a little bit skeptical, come in uh, maybe with a little bit of an, an ethos of distrust initially because of these experiences. How do you build that bridge towards think, implementation? Um, there are a couple of parts when you think about our approach. Number one is that I don't think there's a space for thought leadership without practical application at this time in this space. I think that uh, like we have plenty of people speaking into an echo chamber that sound great, but it means nothing. And so in, in include, including bodies, like the recent UNESCO report is a good example, or the federal government's report that came out a couple months ago. You know, can you guess how many times between the two reports, 120 pages, cheating was mentioned in the two reports? I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that it was a Three whole lot times. because I keep hearing plagiarism in, a lot in the national yeah, dialogue. Once as in well. the federal <laughs> government and twice in the UNESCO paper. It was only so three. There is a real deep disconnect between like what people are talking about and what is being put out there in terms of like any type of guidance. So I believe very, very strongly that we need practical applications with with thought leadership in the sense of like we actually do need to create frameworks and pedagogies and approaches and 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 that's really important. But if you can't show it, then I think it doesn't really work. And that leads to my second piece is that we're more focused on show, not tell. So one of the reasons why our prompt library is, I think, so successful is that it's this choose your own adventure way to start interacting with any chat bot. And it gives you like a scaffolded approach. So it gives you an example that, Daniel, you can use for your classroom. But it gives you an example if you just want to cut and paste and see what's possible. We've already done one for you. So you don't have to use like you don't even have to like think about anything but like what is the difference between a Mac and a PC cutting and paste? That's the level of difficulty this is. You put it in and you see what's possible. And then we show some examples of how to make this work for you because a lot of prompting and a lot of the the expertise that comes in is is almost less about the first prompt, but about the way that you interact with it after. So the reason why that's been so has resonated is it means that like if we have 60 prompts of all different types, everyone has a thing that they really have always wanted to do with planning and thing that they don't like, like rubrics, whatever, and that gives them a starting place. So when we do like, so we've now worked, um, so I've, I've done PDs or kind of consulting or uh, you know, keynotes from in Australia, the US and the UK now. I'm going to be speaking at 6 a.m. tomorrow in Germany. Wish me luck. Um, luck. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, and what's happened is like the way that Good we luck. approach it is always the same. It's like, let's start with, this is not a new thing. You have, like, I literally say, take out your phone. Daniel, take out your phone. If it can recognize your face, that is a part of AI that's been around. Chatbots, 50 years old. You know, we have, we have IBM Watson beat Jeopardy, not last year, but in 2018. And I think it was 2018. Uh, you know, like this is something that like is the, the uh, you know, is a next step, a really big next leap or, you know, maybe a light speed kind of push. But this has already been there. We then go into what are the common myths and facts? What And then we show, we show the capabilities of what's possible and the limitations of what's not. 
so that by the end of that time, people have all had a hands-on keyboard experience, but they also know to be critical users of these tools in an ethical and thoughtful way, because what they're going to need to do is they're going to need to do that exact same thing with the people around them, whether that is students, staff, teachers, et cetera. And so we really try to take that approach every time we do this, where I won't just go into a, a you know organization and talk about policy without situating that into what are we actually talking about first? And then let's talk about policy because it is something that as simple as writing a policy that says students cannot use ChatGPT or we're going to ban it. What it does is it does not indicate significant other types of generative AI that can be used just as well to do this work, whether that is Claude, Bard, Bing, uh, Quillbot, which is used quite a bit for students to like plagiarize and or rewrite. Like these things like ChatGPT seems like it's like Coke is, you know, eponymous of soda, but realistically, ChatGPT is just one form of generative AI. And so something as simple as a misunderstanding of that can lead to a policy that is not effective or actionable. So we try to really create that space in which you can understand that and you can see it and use it, find the value yourself and then be critical users so you can teach others to do that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to your point there around the policy, I think that there's there's such a clear need for that. I was actually reading this uh, study that Arizona State University had uh, just published in the 74.org yesterday around um, doing an analysis of 112 like United States school districts and just around like the public statements that they had. And really what they found is that pretty much like almost all the school districts in the United States are pretty reluctant and refraining from making like very clear uh, district-wide stances around like use of AI. And so to your point, I love this this philosophy of number one, like let's start with the problem that you have an explorer what tools, what way there there may actually be a solution here to address this problem. I know from my perspective, I've uh, gained a lot of energy with being able to test it out with a lot of college access type use cases and been able to show that to some peers and colleagues who've been really repressed by that. One of the most notable things I did is I was able to set up ChatGPT to do a role play um, of giving like financial aid uh, letter analysis, like advice to a student in like a role play situation. Like, could it actually do it like a counselor did? And, uh, you know, I shared the screenshots with a bunch of counselor colleagues and they were like, wow, I mean, this thing might be able to take my job in a couple of years. I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that, but the responses were really good. Um, I, I think the other thing that you, what, what you're saying is also standing out to me is, and I agree with as well is a, regardless of our personal opinions on AI, these AI tools are going to continue to integrate to a lot of products that we use in our everyday experience, as you as you mentioned, right? It's not just going to be ChatGPT or Claude is the end-all AI tool. I mean, kids are playing video games, Fortnite, Roblox, they're adding AI tools, right? Canva, a lot of these, you know, Gmail, all of these things, AI is being integrated into all of these things we use in our everyday lives. And so whether, you know, we agree with them or not, there's probably going to be some type of AI embedded tools and experiences and, and products that we use. Um, I'm, I'm curious as you've been able to talk with schools, get ahead of them, get in front of them, what has their reaction been like to the emergence of AI to the, to the conversations, what type of conversations, questions, curiosities are coming up in those conversations. And I'm maybe just along that I'm curious, like have, have there been any common like misconceptions or concerns or just any uh, themes know, that you're seeing in, in the dialogue you, that you're having with schools and educators? Like, you know, I started this work and we were pretty sure that there was going to be a moment where there'd be this inflection point and I'll call it the oh crap moment that's going to happen in schools. And 
you know, if you asked me in April and May and June, July, now in September, I still have the same time frame in mind, which is like like late October to to November. To like, and the reason why I say that is that right now we are still in a radically early adopter phase, meaning that like when you talked about that uh, that study that you did about setting like any guidelines, it's not necessarily that even like they're reticent to do it, they might not even think it's that important to do yet. And so I think that this is really important because if you're on like, Daniel, you met me on LinkedIn. Like if you're on LinkedIn, you're like, everyone is like a prompt engineer. They are like super thoughtful about ethics. They understand the the potential capacity building, the time saving, like, you know, like we all feel like that. But if you go out of that bubble, Realistically, the majority of, of schools, systems, leaders, teachers across the board have very little familiarity with these tools. So, for example, I did two sessions in Queens last week, uh, one with 75 teachers, one with 10, like a cross mix of students and teachers, which is amazing, doing policy work. And I asked them who had heard of Claude. Not one person had heard of Claude at all in either of those rooms. And this is actually, and it, including, it was also not mentioned in the UNESCO report. And this is one, Claude 2 is probably the closest right now to ChatGPT 4 or 3.5 in output. And so there's a real lack of like awareness or understanding. And so what I'm finding is that it seems very much that, you know, the school districts and the schools that are taking a front foot on this are those that have some people within the, the, the system that understand what this is. And so they become like they're the champions within their organization. And then there are a whole bunch of people that have never used it before or have heard of it or used it once probably incorrectly and got like kind of like this doesn't work and I'm not going to use it um, type of experiences. So realistically, I get really excited every time I talk to a school or system that is interested in doing more because it indicates that they are at least understanding the moment, even if they've never used it before, there's nothing in place. And so, but I'm going to say those are like, it's a rounding error right now. It is not like 50% of schools or 40% of schools. It's like 10 to 20% of schools. And some of those are schools that have, you know, are independent schools or have more like, you know, they're in areas in which their technology is very common or used or digital literacy is high. And so what you're saying is even that is pretty like uneven in terms of like where the the work is being done. So it's kind of a very scary moment. Like I've always talked about yeah. being responsibly optimistic about this, but it does, it is bracing because I was, I guess I was hoping I'd be wrong. And I'll just give an anecdote. I went to a conference of secondary principals just in like July and like the amount of principals that I taught to use ChatGPT, like there was like 80 people that went by the booth, like maybe five of them had any real knowledge. And like, and it is something that's pretty crazy because it's not that long ago. And, and, and yet in September, I still feel like it's not been like a major step forward in like interest in adoption and understanding. We're still like just focused on, you know, the things that matter right now, rostering, substitute teachers, teacher shortage, burnout, students attendance, like all the things that are like COVID fatigue and students that are no longer in the system. We don't know where they've gone. Like that's where people's heads are at. 
without recognizing that when assessments start becoming a big part of our lives at the end of the year, that you're going to suddenly see this really big impact of, of generative AI on student learning, student original work completion, and potentially cognitive, you know, cognitive load. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, there. There is There continues to be a disconnect. I've noticed that as well in just my own uh, experiences going to schools over the last few months. You probably have like one teacher, like if I'm walking into a high school, there's probably one teacher who's like heard of chat GPT or maybe even be actively playing around with it on their laptop. Everybody else is kind of business as usual in terms of just the ratio. And so I think it very much adds up to what you're describing as well. I, how do we get past that? Um, you know, is it, is it really going to continue to be this like grassroots effort where, you know, folks like such as yourself are, you know, doing great work of going to schools, doing this, or is there, as you've described, is there some other way we, uh, accelerate this tipping point? I think the reason I asked this question as well, and what, what concerns me about this is as you've just mm-hmm. alluded to the pandemic in so many ways could have been that tipping point for education, right? It, it, it was probably the most, uh, impactful thing we've had in our country, in education, I mean, at least for a few decades, if not longer. And there were some things that changed as a result of that. Some things I think were were good, right? One example of that, I would say, like at least in college access was a lot of schools now have permanently adopted test optional policies for students who are applying, which I think is a great example of something that happened and has kind of laid around. But if you go into schools now and relative to 2019, a lot of the the business as usual things have kind of continued. I think now everybody's a little bit more uh, technologically savvy, potentially, that they were in 2019, right? A lot, everybody knows what Zoom is now, right? A, a lot of folks know how to do calls and those types of things, which potentially creates a condition that is very conducive to this entire thing, you know, being being different than the pandemic. But I'm, I'm curious... What do you think is going to be the tipping point or how do we, you know, how I do think we accelerate really fascinating that? Is there are a couple of reasons why this? the pandemic was not that tipping point. And it was, it exposed how the infrastructure for education technology in and around schools was really not ready. Um, and that the tools themselves were also not ready. And so, you know, we talk about, there's been research. We did research at the beginning of COVID in Australia and New Zealand and we asked a question like, how many tools do you use to approximate like a, like a classroom? And on average, it was like three to four, but some of them were 15. And this was like, you know, the amount of like cobbling together the different pieces. And what so we had to be exposed this really, really deep lack of infrastructure, of digital equity, of digital literacy of, you know, across the system, but also of like lack of fit for purpose tools to actually create better systems. Like what ended up happening is we replicated a lot of bad systems online. Like if a kid was yawning in a class because of a teacher droning on, now they were yawning with their videos off on a Zoom, probably playing video games. And, you know, and so what we didn't, it didn't like create this forcing mechanism for change, but also because we didn't, we weren't prepared for it and we didn't have the right tools. And it also was too short, like the time was too short. And so what ended up happening is like, there wasn't that really deep drive for true innovation to happen. And so what we end up happening is like a lot of like, you know, Zoom or Google Classroom or, you know, these different digital products became very popular, but realistically they were they were things that already kind of existed in the world that just kind of accelerated. So that's one. And I think that what's happened though now is that we're seeing 
this return or this like over rotation to pen and paper, to pencil, to blue books, to oral exams that was happening before generative AI. And so I, I don't know if you saw this, Dan, but like there was like this, you know, Finland is going back to paper and pencil. And like we always look at Finland as like one of the shining stars with like Singapore. And, you know, one of my favorite anecdotes was like there was another thing about Finland, like where they're like, they used to do outdoor education in like the 80s. And the picture was just kids in rows of desks outside with a teacher in front of a blackboard, but it was in a forest. And like, I think that I think about that a lot, at least written free in my brain, because like all we did was lifted and shifted this industrial model into like the forest. And yet like, it sounds really great, but in reality, what is it? So that's all to be said about like what the system is before Mm -hmm. generative AI. And then what we have done is we have created this space in which a lot of the things that we assess students on are literacy based. And what we've done is we've created a system of generative technology that is literacy based. So it builds like, you know, I can create a five paragraph essay with almost no effort that can replicate my voice to pretty good amount with a couple of prompts. And so what we've done is we've seen this like kind of real shift into like, this is going to change things pretty radically. So that's all to be said, like there's an actual really distinct need to have these conversations early, even though these tools are not necessarily fit for purpose yet for like really transformatively changing what school is, but it has changed what assessment is really fast. And so the last part of your question, you know, is that like, what do we need to do? Like, and from my perspective, there are two things that every single school and system needs to do. Number one is that every single person within your school community should have some kind of AI literacy training. And it should be, it should be thoughtful. It should be easy to understand. It should show the capabilities, limitations, and it should be hands-on keyboard. That's one. Number two is you should have a set of guidelines that are extremely practical, that include, that is not a theoretical policy. I would love it to be two pages. The first page is like, what is this thing? Like, what can it, what are the benefits and like the impact it could have on, on learning or teaching or whatever, like helping your students? What are some appropriate and appropriate uses and what are the steps you need to take? And I like if every single school and, and the fact that you could go to anyone in the, your school community and ask, what are those three steps you should take around AI? And everyone says the same thing. If we could do those two things, we would be remarkably, we would actually be building digital literacy realistically and common understanding more than we've probably done ever in our entire lives as educators. And so, the, I mean, it sounds like, it, as I say it kind of flippantly, like it doesn't sound like that much. I know it's huge. But I do think it's a real opportunity to like take advantage of this moment to create better systems and create common understanding. Yeah, and I think to your point, I mean, both of those feel very uh, sticky and and uh, possible, right? When you look at some of the structures that exist within, uh, you know, a, a, the cadence of a school year, such as they do have, you know, those one to three usually return to in person trainings. You know, as as uh, teachers are going back to the year, I could easily see you being able to fit in a module. Within one of those days to be able to train teachers there, having your leadership team, your administrative team working with uh, your department leads or your entire school to develop some kind of policies or practices uh, around AI, as you've described there. I'm curious, your 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 response there kind of sparked a question for me, a little bit unrelated, but I'm I'm curious as you have interacted with a lot of different schools uh, and folks, you know, throughout the country, what what you've noticed here. But another thing that folks have kind of mentioned around AI tools on the one hand is that this technology uh, in, in, in some particular ways is like very accessible in the sense that, that you just need, you know, a cell phone or a laptop to be able to access it. 
So the, the like democratization aspect of it, there's like potential for it to be something that can like be a force multiplier and, and bring equity across, you know, students from uh, first generation low income backgrounds relative to affluent schools. But I also think in terms of urban communities to rural communities, I'm curious in terms of the communities that have like reached out to you or communities that have you served, are you finding like a, a pretty unique distribution of school context and school communities? Or are you finding it, it's mostly, you know, affluent uh, school communities that are reaching out for your services? No, it's like really who's, interesting. Who's, who's and I think taking it potentially like is like a sample bias because right of the now. way that we approach what we do. Because we, our kind of approach as an organization is um, to give everything for free. <laughs> I, you know, I started a company and I became Oprah when it came to like free courses and like resources, which was, I guess, not my, my co-founder's intention. We do need to, to do a better job of making money over time. But, you know, what, what's happened though, is I think because we're putting so much free stuff into the world, what we're actually seeing is people coming to us of all kinds. And so we, we, we have had primarily public schools and public districts um, and a lot of low income. And that also might be a part of, because we talk a lot about equity, we talk a lot about like, uh, you know, responsible mm. use, we talk a lot about like, you know, making it work for every student, every teacher that that maybe that again, it's, this is a sample bias that we have. But I've been really like, po- like, it's been really positive. It's also been distributed across the country. And like I said, across the world a bit. Um, I know that, though, I would say that access to the technology itself. So I'll use an example, there's a wall garden approach, which means that like, it's a a kind of safer, but not fully safe version of ChatGPT, where they're, you know, doing a pilot of six schools and like every school is independent. So I would say like access to the technology itself, especially when it costs money, because one of the things that's very interesting about the shift into generative AI versus other tools is that it's significantly more expensive to run a generative AI tool or a tool that uses generative AI than it is to run an, like any other real like computer technology software and service tool. And so it, it's very hard to do something fully free, even when it would used to be free because it's not very good yet, right? Like you have a beta product, you put it into the world, it's free because it's kind of crappy. What's happening is because the cost of compute is very high, these tools end up costing money. And so what is really interesting is I think that that's where you see more of a digital divide already is like in the actual tools themselves. Like some schools may be buying GPT-4 for their teachers, which costs $20, or they're providing like, you know, direct access to different tools that cost money. Um, And I think that that's where you see, at least I see it more than just the training component of it. Um, But a lot of it's hidden because I think also what's happening is schools are tapping like instructional designers or instructional, sorry, social coaches to go do this. And that's where you get the deep, you get the deep misconceptions. I'm always kind of fascinated when someone introduces me at a school or a system because almost always is there a misconception in their introduction of me and and generative AI? Almost always. Like in the actual introduction itself, there is a misunderstanding of the Mm. way that these tools work, their limitations and capabilities. And every single time that's happened when someone actually not just doesn't say, Hey, it's Amanda. Luckily they know my name. That's not a, (laughs) that's right. But if they're trying to actually talk about why it's important, there's always, it always, it always carries something that is (laughs) technically not correct about the tools themselves. Let's, let's maybe sit further in this, in that, in that question for a second. So when you, um, when you, when you're working with schools or, and, you know, schools are want to go now further beyond just understanding what some of these AI tools are. They want to actually try to like implement or adopt some of these tools. 
I'm curious, like, what have you, what has been coming up for you in terms of like some of the biggest challenges that you've noticed around like trying to meaningfully implement uh, AI, but like some of the barriers that may like be hindrances for schools um, or for classrooms that, like, or for individual educators and, like, being able to do that. These tools, like, you, like they're not actually fully open and then they're inconsistently open. And so, for example, you know, in a New York City school, low income, you know, literally there's a, you know, a metal detector downstairs, 75 teachers, every single teacher in there from like very new to very not new was hands on keyboard and engaged. It's like, it's, it's an, remarkable, Daniel. Like I wish people can understand that if you give this, if you do this in the right way and you make it meaningful and practical, you're going to have the highest engagement in the PD you probably have ever had because people really actually want to know. And as you can show the ways in which you can help, people will see that light bulb, which is not the case in most things. But at the very end, the, you know, the principal had to say, and we're shutting it off tomorrow before students return. And so now teachers are like, gave me this, like this potential gift and now you're taking it. And so I think that that's been interesting. And so that's really around that, that inconsistency of regulation and our approach and that kind of wait and see component of even if I'm going to open up to my teachers and we're still not sure enough around our students, which is fair because actually I do not think that any of these tools, I do not think that students should be actively using any tool right now without supervision and especially not without, without um, support because the tools have significant biases. They're super unreliable. They have hallucinations where they make stuff up. And so I think that's really interesting. But then also in that same session, in two minutes, I watched uh, an older teacher actually use ChatGPT wrong in three different ways in two minutes, which I was, which was great. I mean, it was like pretty impressive. She first thought that it knew past 2021. Then she thought that it could access the internet. And then she thought it could read like a, a, a website with 17 nested PDFs to build a full unit plan. And so, you know, there's also, and then I watched another person do a prompt pretty poorly and then say that ChatGPT was wrong or it wasn't, it wasn't that the problem was a technology, not him writing the prompt. And so I think that the second thing is like that digital literacy piece, like it's going to take more than just me or someone similar to me standing in front of a classroom and talking about this. It really does take people like trying and, and working. It is a form of computer science to prompt engineer. It is not intuitive. It is something that's quite different and new, and it requires a lot of like refinement, skill, and patience. But at the same time, like, oh man, like it could do super cool stuff, right? And then I think the last thing that I'm seeing is like, when we think about the challenges, is that these tools themselves cannot be trusted, yet they can't be ignored. So what do you do? And I'm actually thinking about this a lot because I have to, I'm trying to figure out how to write about this. Like, how do I write about the fact that like, this technology is the worst it's ever going to be. It has incredible issues around reliability, trust, privacy, bias, et cetera, right? Like, and yet it is the potential of it in a year to two years makes it so amazingly like transformative. But because it was released so early and so widely and so consumer focused is that even though it has all those problems, it's a part of our lives already that we can't ignore. So how do we how do we go into and talk to people about the fact of you can't ignore this, you can't trust it, but you you have to use it, but then you have to use it in a critical way 
And then I can't tell you like a tool you can use that is going to be really good. And like, there's like this back and forth, it's paradoxical. Like, how do you actually say you can't ignore it, but you can also trust it. So like, in my mind, a lot of the work has to happen where there's this next year of like these new tools that are using ChatGPT and other and the APIs into these foundational models that are going to start building better systems that are more reliable, more fit for purpose, more, more safe. But we have, but we can't, we can't wait until that year or 18 months. We have to start talking about it right now where it's going to make up a URL. It's going to be biased occasionally. It's going to, uh, you know, say something inappropriate. And like, how do you, how do you manage those two extremes without throwing people off, making them distrust it, or like potentially damaging their growth because they're going to say this is bad and I'm not going to touch it and I'm not going to come back to it. No, I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a, um, quite the tightrope to have to like follow and, and navigate. I think is, especially from that, I think from my perspective, I mean, just knowing that, you know, the example that I continue to think about when I think about some of these ALI tools is I really think about the dynamic of like Iron Man and Jarvis in some of the like Avengers movies is like one of the clearest examples I see as to like how I think these could be used effectively where like, yeah, Iron Man was like using Jarvis and Jarvis could do like very complicated math instantly, but he never, he, there were multiple times in some of the movies where Jarvis would calculate something when he was flying into the air or doing something and he, he, he didn't follow the orders, right? He did what he wanted to do. He acknowledged that this was like a virtual bot, not his best friend. The other thing is Iron Man went to MIT. So Iron Man is the like active learner driving the resources that he has uh, to be able to, uh, you know, be able to get to answers quicker, but he's not like solely relying on this robot to do some of that. And I think if we could just like get people to understand that it, just as you've described, those these tools are imperfect. Well, number one, like humans are imperfect too, right? We have biases as well. We have we have imperfect as well. We get tired as well. We're emotional as well. So it's not to suggest that like every type of work that a human does relative to one of these like AI bots is going to be perfect, and then the the bot is not. There's obviously that's not to to again like write off the you know the the work that still needs to be done to enhance. But the second thing is though I you know and to your point earlier, I think something that I've been uh, really just thinking a lot about, um, you know, recently is the fact that, you know, we we're in an age now in society where information data, that's like the most valuable currency, right? Like the world that our students are inheriting is a world where information and data just is produced so rapidly that nobody can possibly keep up, right? This isn't, uh, you know, the 1900s anymore, where you could kind of read a lot of books daily, and you can kind of keep up with the flow of information that's coming out. Um, I think it's going to be, it's going to potentially your skill set to be able to not just create information, but to be able to be very effective at curating information is going to be like in a very effective skill for the world that we're about to inherit where information is produced so rapidly. And so these types of tools can help us to be able to do that more quickly than we could do it on our own with how fast like information is being produced. And so I think fundamentally, if uh, as educators, if we truly want what is going to be the world that our students are going to inherit. We have to find some kind of way to feel okay with trying to teach students how to like live in a world and coexist in a world with some of these tools, right? Whether or not we uh, like the tools or not, because as you've described, I mean, that's that's going to be their reality mm-hmm. in some some capacity. These tools are going to be a form of their reality. Yeah, no, I think so, it's really interesting um, because well, I, that's, I was that's trying to kind of tease about. out your idea of trust, <laughs> right? Because when I hear you say like, we're imperfect, but if I pay for a technology tool, let's say like my phone, 
if it doesn't work, if it starts calling people randomly or making up numbers or it starts to like, like kind of provide me, like I search for one thing and it gives me something else, I would think that phone is defective and I'd probably return it. And so I think I definitely agree that like, while we are imperfect, there is a, like these tools have been made to do one thing, Daniel, and that is to make money. And we can't, we can't tease that out. And they are going to be monetizing these tools Mm -hmm. where it's like a defective phone at times where like ChatGT4, you pay for it, will make stuff up. It will send you to the wrong thing. It will tell you math that's not true. Like, you know, it'll, it'll say it read a PDF, but it only read the first two pages, you know, that kind of thing, which we don't quite understand why that happens. But I think that that's where I get kind of worried about some of these things. So let's say one thing I keep hearing over and over again and people are building is uh, assessment tools. So grading or feedback tools. I, it gets me in a, at a cold sweat mm-hmm. every time I see really amazing technologists and education technologists building these tools because I understand that these tools, these models are flawed and they hallucinate. And what happens though, if a teacher gets really comfortable with the feedback that something is given, it's, they agree it's only a first draft or what happens if they're really busy or if they get, they trust it and it's 95% accurate and that last 5% is like really inaccurate, right? And the teachers can do that too, but usually they'll remember, like if a kid asks, why did I get this grade? They can answer the same way if you ask a kid how they wrote that essay and they suddenly can't say because they used AI as that cognitive offload. Like that's where I get really, really nervous because it, it can create a false sense of trust when it's, where it seems like it's working and it's not all the time. And it can't, no one can, no one can tell you right now, there's not a tool in the market to say that hundred percent, it doesn't hallucinate, it's not biased and it won't be incorrect hundred percent of the time. But like when the, what's interesting though, is then that you have the extra layer that these things are very expensive, but what happens when that's true, that it's not going to be perfect, but then I'm also paying for it. And when I think about paying for stuff, I trust it more because these people are asking for my money. Yeah. And that's why we get very frustrated. Sorry, customer service people out there, but I think why we get very frustrated with customer service people, it's not their fault. But if you tell me that I'm paying for something, I confer a level of trust and expectation. And what's happening is these tools are are, are going to be building trust and expectation and they're actually not going to be reliable yet. And I think that that's something that really makes me think about how these things are used because it will like sometimes like, you know, these tools will be laughably wrong. You'll be like, ha ha ha, like that's not a real URL, you know, but then sometimes it's so subtle that it could, it could essentially change the way in which you interact with student potentially forever because that student feels like you didn't actually read their paper. You gave them an answer that didn't even include what they were writing about, or they did a math problem in a unique and creative way. And you said and it gave you a, it didn't even give you a partial grade because you didn't do it the way it was. And so instead of penalizing, instead of supporting creativity, we're penalizing it because it doesn't fit the way the models are built. So that's, that to me is like where we have to really find that balance of like trust in these tools. Like we, the, these, these tools are making money off of us, right? So how do we interact with them to create a system in which we actually, they are good enough for us to use and to pay for? No, I think that's such a, such a valid point. And I think to, to your point, I don't know that we, we really have maybe the appropriate dynamic or framework yet uh, for how we, we will need to coexist with AI technology relative to 
the expectations and how we've coexisted with things in the past. Because I think you use the, you know, the analogy of the cell phone, which I like, I totally agree with the dynamic that you've laid out and the expectations that I would have. But I think from my perspective, I see this like AI technology a little bit more like similar to, you know, social media. And I think the expectations of the dynamic that I would have, and I think most people have with social media, is a little bit different than a cell phone in the sense that you're right that I may not necessarily be paying like my physical dollars, but I think a lot of people are paying, you know, obviously their time, their attention, the investment that they have. And, but with social media platforms, there's obviously just the cachet of, uh, good and bad that comes with it. Good in the sense that it connects society in a way that we've never been connected before. Bad in all of the things that we've seen around like what it does to people's mental health, the ability to like spread information, all of those things. And it feels like there's a framework that needs to be developed around like these 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 technological aspects that aren't static, right? Like a like a cell phone that, you know, kind of stays the way it is until the next iteration, but it's something some kind of software, some type of uh, platform that continues to evolve. It feels like the the frameworks or the ways that we think about our dynamic might be a little bit uh, outdated for how we need to be uh, appropriately setting expectations and communicating expectations uh, with with educators around like how you should be thinking about um, you know those things that are appropriate. So I I hear that. I'm I'm curious like to maybe walk a little bit further down this 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 question and line of thinking here. So, you know, knowing what you know about AI, you're absolutely right. Hallucinations, model drifts, all of those things exist, right? Um, and at the same time, I think you've you've obviously created an organization dedicated to 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 this work. So I would maybe I would peg you a little bit as like at least slightly bullish at this particular point. I would say I'm cautiously optimistic about these tools as well. So with what you know about the tools, the good, the bad, and the ugly, like what to what extent do you actually see them being able to um, you know, address challenges in education, be able to like actually help us? And then where do you draw the line? And I know that the question is likely complicated because as you've alluded to, the tools right now are the worst as it ever gets. So if, I mean, if yeah. you want to think about I mean, tools so now versus we, tools we say where you think they're going, that's okay optimistic. too. So, you know, we believe in, in the possibility and the transformative possibility of AI if it's responsibly adopted and built. And so what I would say is the things that I get most excited about, which are short term, are, you know, schools are really complex places right now. Teachers, we talked about it, are burnt out, they're tired. I remember writing four page narrative, uh, you know, lesson plans when I was a first year teacher and then writing on the back of an envelope when I was a last year teacher. Like there's something to be, I mean, like it was a pretty fast mm -hmm. drift. Let's just say that from like, overachiever to like, I'm barely alive. But, um, and so what I would say is that I think the very first yep. step is, be like we that. see this in industry as well. The first step is not actually organizations building external facing tools, but they're building internal facing tools. So like, how are we, how can we increase productivity? How can we lower burnout? How can we save time? How can we create better things? How can we lower the cognitive load outside of the classroom so that inside the classroom you can be both present and engaged and supported to do your best by your students and by yourself too. You know what? It's important for a teacher to feel like they're doing something that matters and that it works too. Like there's nothing harder than like failing in a classroom and trying your absolute hardest not to fail. Like that is something that is like will carry with you. I carry it with me even today. So I think that that's the first case for teachers. For students, I think there's a part of like digital literacy and AI literacy. You talk about social media, 
we missed the boat on social media. We did not. The reason why there's no framework is because we didn't think it needed one and we were wrong. And so like, this is an opportunity to, to create a system in which students are like mm-hmm. really going to be yep. like at the forefront of this and at the beginning of this and be active uh, and agentic consumers and users of this technology so that when they get to the next stage of their, their life and careers or education, they're prepared. It also is a great way to like provide students an opportunity to like build and create and to be computer scientists in ways in which you've never done before. If you love building games, go to it. Use GPT-4 for 20 bucks and build your game. Or you love websites, go to an online website builder. Or you are really into music. Like there are so many new tools. So I think that's really exciting. And then also this ability, like I love when I see students essentially like hijack a grading tool to help them grade their own stuff. So that when they go in later, they have a better draft and they're not cheating, but what they're using is like, my teacher isn't available at one o'clock in the morning when I've done playing Fortnite Mm. and I want to like have a better chance. And so I think that's really exciting. So on that part, that's short term. Long term is where we start to see generative AI being used as a component of larger AI systems and machine learning systems that, that put together kind of more traditional machine learning and algorithms to create better tools. And I talk about this a lot, early reading, early math, remediation, like foundational stuff that we actually know how like science of reading works, like building science of reading tools that have the generative component to make it engaging and to put the student in the center of their book in fun and dynamic ways while still being able to use traditional AI, like more AI to like recognize words and fluency, tone, et cetera. So I'm really excited about that. I, I truly, I, I wonder if generative AI will be what we're talking about in two to three years, or if it will be something like a, a newer version of the model or approach in the same way, like when we think about what generative AI means, or if we're going to be looking at it as multiple models that are building together that create much better, more personalized, more reliable, safer systems that can become Daniel's assistant and Amanda's assistant that can, that can grow with us in, in positive ways that also are safe and private. And we we understand the impact of synthetic relationships. We understand all kinds of things that we don't understand right now. And like, maybe when you talk about equity, like, you know, we see that reading is a great example of like where students, where you really see the difference between system, like places in which students are from complex low-income areas, which is not, is that the reading, like reading competency is a really good indicator of that, right? The amount of words that students know when they get into school, how they how they comprehend reading, how they learn, et cetera. Like to be able to create something in which that doesn't care where the student's from, their backgrounds, like it understands their cultural needs, like in the sense of like language dialogue, like puts the kid in the middle where they're personally interested. Like think how cool that would be to have kids of all types hit in an equitous, like an equitable way, a level of reading proficiency that like is actually equitable. Like that to me, I think is one of the things I'm most excited about. Yeah, that that resonates a lot. I, I mean, to your point, I know a little bit less about how how hallucinations happen, but I know that from model drift, my understanding is like one of the, the ways that model drift happens is when um, a, a set number of like parameters for a large language model were like established. And then as information continues to flood in, especially for uh, large language models that are connected to the internet, it, it gets out of whack, right? Because the parameters no longer, no longer are able to accommodate the like information that has like come in. And I think to your point of being able to define something as, as clear as like, could we have an, an AI assistant or a programmer and experience some kind of AI uh, tool for something like a very uh, defined grade level or defined like um, 
subject. The nice thing about that is potentially you're building a large language model just around that subject area. And as you've described, like the foundation and the best practices for like how to teach somebody to read for the most part, those things should stay relatively static, right? You're not being flooded with information, hopefully daily, which is going to cause like this model drift or uh, some of those aspects to take place. And I wonder if that potentially leads to like a higher efficacy with some of those tools being and us to be able to like do this well, um, you know, compared to like having to, you know, flood the entire information yeah, on the internet those, into something those, and then expecting that it's going to continue to work as like finding a solution to a problem versus finding a problem and then identifying solutions. And so I think like point solutions are what we see is actually kind of growing the fastest. Like, so like video editing and like photo editing and LinkedIn copy, like, like LinkedIn posts and, you know, copywriting but I think that there's that real opportunity to think about point solutions for students. But also I think that like wall garden approaches, which are like, sm like smaller amounts of data, thinking about how we, how we cut and even digitizing a lot of what's not possible right now is that we have a ton of unstructured data in the world, but specifically in education. And what we mean by unstructured data, it means that like, it's not like in a spreadsheet or it's not like every single lesson plan that's in mm -hmm. a district is in the same format with the same standards and things. Like what happens is you have something on your drive, Dan, I've got it on my drive. It's in different formats. Mine's on the back of an envelope. Sorry, everybody. I'm getting, you know, not a good grade on that observation, but like what ends up happening is like, this is opportunity also to start like taking unstructured data and like digitizing it in a way where it actually can become the corpus of information that can train a model so that it actually is built on evidence and pedagogy and like best practice and, and, and like moving away from anecdote, but moving to like best practice evidence research and like all these knowledge bases that are almost impossible to, to activate and to apply like that could be really interesting. And so I think there are things like that that are going to become more and more possible if it's incentivized that those are what people want, right? If we want it to work better, which I think is what's really going to push the dime is that like, we're going to have to have it be better, but that will be a forcing mechanism for these tools to exist because then like no one wants a chat bot that works 94% of the time. Like we want a chat bot, like, you know, like the crappy chat bots that have all made our, you know, pull out our hair, are not great, but they kind of only tell you, like, they don't go off script and start telling you, like, you know, about their, like, day, you know, like, they're, they're not gonna suddenly make up something. Like, you know, some of my favorite ones is like a recipe builder. And if you give it certain information, it'll build you like chlorine gas, like it does not understand. Or if you give it like non edible stuff, it'll make up a recipe with non edible stuff. That's like, that's kind of what we are. <laughs> But I want a chatbot that knows everything about my school, that is able to respond to students. Like you talk about college access, I want them to be able to know the up-to-date FAFSA rules. I want them to understand where that resources is. I want them to understand that there are you know, places that they never knew they're there and they don't even have to ask anymore. I can anticipate it. Like this is a common like student that comes in and like, I understand that Daniel's this type of student. And so I know to kind of be aware of like, there are probably some questions that they, like he might not ask. So I'm going to provide those resources in thoughtful ways, the same way that a, you know, a, a great advisor would be. But a lot of times what will happen is a student won't go to an advisor. Like I didn't, cause I was like, didn't know better. And I also was like, kind of like uncertain of what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to go in front of a professor and ask silly questions as, and so instead, like I didn't do it at all. And, and maybe I would have done a different path if I had like to do that now in a straight structured environment is going to be possible, but only when we create these models that like really are able to stick within a corpus of data and then respond in meaningful ways 
and then create rules around those responses so they become more proactive and more meaningful and, and, and really provide like, that opportunity the same way that a great like person would if they really cared about you and were super knowledgeable. No, I, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious. So with everything that you've learned about AI and education and, you know, you've obviously or you know, in the, in the top 1% in terms of practitioners who have learned about these tools and the good, the bad and the ugly, as I've described, the national media is, as we have, you know, both described as well, largely focused right now around like this plagiarism or the academic mm-hmm. like merit piece. In my experience, like a lot of the the mainstream conversation still continues to to be around that. What what would you say is like something, a question, a topic within this this field that nobody's really talking about right now or thinking I, about I, that I we actually is, need to be you know, talking or oh gosh, thinking there's about. so many interesting things. Oh man, I'm really boring. Like I think about this a lot and I read about it a lot and I have a very good memory. So I'm going to be terrible at dinner parties, but like, I think that there are these, these pieces, like what do you, like, <laughs> how do you start to understand technical tools that actually have like greater impact than what we see? Like we see a chat bot, but what we don't see is the, the consumption of water to cool, super cool, like just cool, super computers. Right. Which is so, for example, Microsoft went to mm. Iowa to build their, you know, open AI. It's like a, a big, 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 big data center. And their consumption of water went through the roof. And they didn't really tell anybody, but like you can tell what it's, you know, like it happened, right? And I think that this is where there's like these, like, I think that if I could, if we could think about it, and we're t- I'm talking about something that's pretty complex and nuanced, is that these tools themselves are not like ends to like means. Like because generative AI exists today doesn't mean it should. And it doesn't mean it can't be changed or stopped or like or like controlled, right? And I think a lot of times when we see this, we have this narrative of like it's into the world that it's the train is off the you know the freight train's going or whatever idiom you want to use, right? The cat's on the bag, Pandora's box is open, whatever. But what happens is like there is actually these like deep, like really complex ways in which these systems actually interact with us that there is this opportunity to kind of take a little bit of a pause and have discussions about this and to to take advantage of everything that we have learned from social media, the internet, devices. Like Steve Jobs did not let his kids use devices. Like that's a really good understanding that someone knew this, right? And so I think that this is where we have this opportunity to think, to, to pull back just a bit and maybe take this moment to like stop or at least slow down, or at least like recognize the moment we're in and build better for the future. Because the worst thing that we could do is say like, it's already been done. Everything that comes out of it, it's out of our hands. You know, we don't exactly know how these things work. We're going to call it a hallucination because it's like kind of hard to understand what it is. And like, it's not really just talking about it fails, you know, on these things. But I think that that's really this, this opportunity because when you took, I, I, I will leave this will be the last thing I'll kind of say, like, is that, you know, there was a <laughs> this thing about OpenAI and they're like origin story and it's very like, you know, Sam Altman and the crew and they did all this stuff with OpenAI. And then there's like this kind of throwaway line that like they're, you know, way more interested or way more excited about general AI, which is like Jarvis, than they are about safety. Like the excitement about building the next thing is way more interesting than building a better system. Mm. 
And I think that this is where I'd love to have people really talking about this and, and putting like positive pressure or even negative pressure on these kind of big corporations that are GPU rich that can do these foundational models to not just say like, hey, regulate us, but like actually what, what does it mean to create ethical, responsible systems? What does it mean to think about your footprint? What does it mean to think about if you are moving towards like 20% of all of OpenAI's resources are going towards general, general AI, like again, like Jarvis, like what does that mean so that when this happens, if it does happen, we're not as unprepared as we are right now? Yeah, there's a lot there to think about. I think too, I'm, I'm especially just, just still holding on to we described earlier with the water consumption, which is something I had uh, just heard of as well. And you're right that you, what we get when we enter a prompt into one of these things is we obviously get, uh, you know, this like uh, visual response, but there, there are like real physical resources that are being expended when any of us are using these AI tools and like, what's the cost of that? Are there any impacts there is something that so people, uh, I do think every time it doesn't give you something inappropriate be, like, because a person well. and they um, and a developing country has looked at that content and has determined it that it's inappropriate. Like this, this is, there is not just an environmental cost. There is a people cost to what we are building. These systems look like they are supercomputers and that they think, and they're not computing all this stuff. That's the way they've been designed. Right. But realistically they're built off of human effort, human work and, 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 and human impact on the environment. And I think that we don't really drill down to that, that these things are not magic. They look like they're magic. They're not magic. They're there, you know, literally someone is looking at every possible inappropriate piece of content that came from the web and then telling ChatGPT that's inappropriate and then deciding how inappropriate it is <laughs> and rating it. And that's their whole job. No, and as you've, as you've, I think, uh, said so eloquently throughout our conversation here, the intention behind a lot of these, uh, yeah tools in their current iteration is actually not to be right. It's to persuade, it's to be convincing. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, in a lot of the responses that you get, it may actually be very compelling, but it, it may not be accurate. Right. Uh, so that's something to, to continue to hold on to as well. I know you have a lot of resources on uh, your website, so I'd, I'd love to just maybe close out here with uh, giving you an opportunity to just share if, if folks are interested in connecting with you, connecting with AI for Education, uh, well, interacting um, with your so tools. So you can check uh, us out at AIforeducation.io. Um, we have a ton of free resources, which we talked about earlier. Um, so we have a full prompt library of prompts that can be used from teachers, leaders to um, students. Um, we've got, including some college access stuff, we have like some college essay ideas and some other things. Uh, we have a curriculum that's a, like an AI literacy curriculum for grades seven to 12 that teaches about, uh, prompt engineering, the difference between thinking and computing, uh, the hallucinations and how to spot them. And then also students co-create a policy so that they're agentic in that work. Um, we've got a free course that's been taken by like more than a like couple thousand people in like six weeks, which has been pretty cool. We have a webinar series that's, <laughs> I'm insane. So we're, this will be our 13th webinar in 13 weeks on AI, um, the combination of thought leadership and um, and uh, practical, practical pieces. Today's, mm. this week's is on uh, preparing students for an AI powered future. And then the final thing is the way we met each other. I didn't intend to, but I am super online right now. So I'm very on LinkedIn. Um, always happy. I pretty much say 
hello and yes to everybody that comes my way. Um, so reach out there. That's where we put a lot of our resources and that's where a lot of the good collaboration happens. So lots of different opportunities, all of it free to access and we'll keep pushing. And as we grow, I think, you know, our commitment is we will always have a free course. We will always have free resources. We will always have a free webinar series. So that's our commitment to everybody um, so that we can ensure hopefully an equity of response. Awesome. Thanks for that, Amanda. And, and Amanda's LinkedIn as well as AIforeducation.io's website will be posted in our show notes underneath this episode. So click on those links if you're interested in uh, connecting with her. Thank uh, you, Amanda, man. thanks I so really much for your time today, it. sharing your expertise. And thanks for all the work that you're doing to support our schools. Thanks for listening to the AI Education Conversation. Give a follow, rate, and review wherever you listen. For all show notes and to share your thoughts on today's episode, check out the AI Ed Convo on Twitter. See you next time.